Are you a clinician who's interested in adding a gym to your clinic? We have great online courses over at clinicgymhybrid.com. We have some courses on the most important thing, which is hiring a trainer, how to do that, how to hire them well, and who not to hire. We also have some great courses all about regressions and coaching and a bunch of other great stuff. Some of them are led by me. Some of them are led by our amazing co-instructors like Cody Demack and Dan Swinsko, Kurt Kippenberger, and others. But I'd love to have you check it out. So head over to clinicgymhybrid.com and check out our online courses because they cover the most important subjects within that clinic and gym model. Hey, welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. This is Dr. Josh Satterley, and I'm excited for you to be on this journey. Look, when I started my Clinic Gym Hybrid back in 2013, I didn't have a place to go for resources. That's why we're doing this podcast. That's why we're here. I hope you dig this interview. Let's jump in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Clinic Gym Radio. And I am uh, your host, Dr. Josh Satterley. And it is my absolute pleasure today to be, to be joined by one of the people that I think set the tone for the idea of blending a clinic and gym early on. And that is Brett Jones. Brett, how are you? I'm fantastic, Josh. Really looking forward to our conversation today. It's uh, I'm so glad you reached out and uh, glad to connect. Yeah, well, it is my pleasure to work with you. I feel like this is, um, please take this in the spirit which is intended. This is me launching a rocket and going back and talking to my college physics professor about, you know, hey, you inspired me or you helped me form a basis for this. Uh, the reason I, I heap all these accolades on Brett is Brett was part of the FMS before it was cool. And Brett was swinging kettlebells before they were cool. And uh, we were just talking before we hit record it. The difficulty of even finding, getting your hands on a kettlebell let alone owning multiple weights and styles and, you know, competition versus uh, non-competition side. Like, I mean, these were crazy ideas. And I, I remember at one point, a 53 pound kettlebell, which I always thought was like, it was like, why the hell would it be 53? It's either 50 or 55. Don't you know how to like right. count in exercise increments? Like everybody knows it's 50 <laughs> or 55. Anyways, a 53 pound kettlebell uh, was like, $300 by the time you did shipping and everything to your house. Um, they've, they've gone up, they've gone down. And during COVID, I saw those prices again. Sometimes it was crazy. Uh, and uh, anyways, you, you were playing with them before people even knew they weren't uh, cow, cow balls or kettle balls or cowbells or whatever they were called. Right. I've, I've heard many uh, iterations of the, of the name and yep. uh yeah, in late 2001, when I got my first kettlebell and, and got certified in February of 02, um, you know, we were definitely, uh, there was, there weren't many other people in the, in the country uh, that yeah. were participating. And, I, I want to talk a little bit about this history, but I want you to realize yeah. there are listeners of this podcast that weren't born <laughs> yet when you were putting your hands on a kettlebell, okay? So I'm, I'm comfortable with uh, the the age uh, that that I've uh, yeah that I've reached. All right, so take us back to 2001. Uh, how do you stumble across the kettlebell and or the crazy man who became your instructor? So again, uh, spirit they, in which it's intended. Absolutely. Well, we call him the evil Russian uh, for yeah. for a good reason. Um, so uh, somebody that. I, had worked with me. I was running a hospital fitness center at the time. Mm -hmm. So we were doing a clinic post, gym. 
Crazy. It's, yeah. Who, who would think of that? This is, we got to uh, write this down. This is, right. this is gold. These old team jokes, Jerry, yeah. they're gold. Um, and, and again, the, the younger listeners are like, what is he talking about? <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, I'm running this hospital fitness, uh, wellness center and, uh, we're doing post rehab before post rehab was a thing and, and transitioning people from PT and OT into fitness. And somebody that had been an employee came back and said, Hey, you should really check out this, uh, Pavel guy. And so I ordered one of his first books, uh, Power to the People, which was uh, really counterculture at the time that it came out. It was two exercises that you did every day um, and was the anti-bodybuilding message. Um, so it was, it. I mean, you read this at the time and just everything was bodybuilding based at the time. Quotation marks, uh, you know, bombastic statement. But uh, it was, fitness was heavily influenced by bodybuilding at the time. Yeah, and, and, so here, and to put in perspective, I remember like um, during that late '90s, early 2000s was like the growth of EAS supplements, and they they put out a magazine of their own. Uh, muscle muscle Fitness 2000? was getting big. Muscle, yeah, um, there was uh, the Flex magazine, or one of the. I mean, there was. Mm-hmm. It seemed like every couple months there was a new magazine. A lot of them were sponsored by the supplement companies who were also growing at the time. Um, so. It wasn't just what we think of as bodybuilding today. It was a growing industry that was kind of taking over the world. And it was the main message in all of fitness, right? Absolutely. And so here comes this guy saying, okay, don't worry about hypertrophy. Focus on strength. Here's a minimalist way to do it with a uh, deadlift and a side press. And uh, you're going to lift every day, you know. And, And at the time, I was a recovering hit Jedi. I had come out of this phase where I'm like one set to failure every 17 days because I'm a hard gainer and I have to rest long enough to recover and all this other crap. Um, And so I read this book and I'm like um, mind blown. And so I start my deadlifts and and training in in this way. And then the the marketing machine kicked in and they, they, at this time they had started uh, the next book coming out was the Russian kettlebell challenge. Um, and then kettlebells came out and then they started with certifications and I missed the first one, which was in October of 01. I went to the second ever certification in in February of uh, 02 and we were doing fun things like throwing water balloons at each other at, uh, you know, nine o'clock at night when it's below freezing, uh, to learn how to absorb force, um, as we were learning about the swing and everything. I like it. It's a very good feedback loop, right? 100%. 100%. You'd know if you did yeah. it right. Yeah. Self-correcting, as Gray would say. Um, so I had gotten my first kettlebell uh, late in 2001 and uh, went to get certified in in, uh, in 02. And, you know, yeah, it was just counterculture at the time. Nobody was doing it. It was unique. Um, people didn't understand it. It's a fad. You'll be done in five years. Well, 20, 22 years later um, in February of 2020. Four, um, I'm happy to say, not a fad. You you found kettlebells at a Holiday Inn Express, uh, a nice set of them, and uh, you you can't look at a fitness advertisement nowadays uh, that doesn't have a kettlebell somewhere in the picture. Yeah. So we've gone from fad to standard, um, and I think it's it'll continue because it is simply an effective tool. The mm-hmm. the the not only the the design, the thick handle offset center of mass, the way it becomes alive in your hands, 
the overspeed eccentric that we can get into during our clean snatches swings. Uh, the way the offset center of gravity guides your arm in a better position for get-ups and presses. And there's just so many unique benefits. And it's and the power work that you do is without the uh, dramatic load of plyometrics. Uh, and it's beyond some of the other ways that we would say that we're training power. And we can accomplish a lot of different uh, energy system work. Uh, by using the kettlebell. So I think there's a there's a ton of benefits to it. Um, it's not just that I'm lazy, uh, but if mm-hmm. I have one tool that gives me five things, I don't go looking for the other four. Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm good with that one tool. I heard a, a, a story that reminds me of kettlebells. Um, and I think you'll laugh at this. There is this, uh, so the story goes about simple solutions, right? There's a, a guy who's the, there, there's a, a big factory and has a in the factory for the male employees there are three urinals right and they're the smallest type urinals and unfortunately all around the urinals uh, is urine and uh, the cleaning people are getting pissed forgive the pun uh, because they constantly have to clean it up it's on the wall it's on this and that right so they say how can we fix this problem right so uh, uh, one guy you know says, hey, we got to install these bigger urinals. Like, you just need a bigger target, blah, 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 blah. And uh, they looked at the cost, you know, it's like $6,000 or something to get them installed. Uh, Plus, they got to close the bathroom for a few days. Um, And then another guy was like, oh, well, let's put on these like splash guards, right? Like, you know, these plexiglass splash guards. So they try that, but then the splash guards have to be cleaned periodically and blah, blah, blah. Then they, um, you know, they, they try some other things and they got the end they ended up with a very simple solution, which was uh, one of the maintenance guys got a waterproof sticker of a fly and put it down at the bottom, right where the best place for you to pee would be. Right. And so when guys see that they go, Oh, well, instead of peeing anywhere or outside of the borders here, I'm going to drown the fly. And uh, they continue to do that. And in one simple sticker that costs, you know, 12 cents, they solve the problem. Right. And it corrects everything because it's kind of entertaining. It helps you clean or reduces the cleaning. And it's easy to install. If it breaks, you can just get another sticker very easily, right? And I think the kettlebell is the same way. I think a lot of people these days use them. But for me, one of the interesting, one of the interesting things about using a kettlebell is that you learn um, a lot of details and lessons looking backward at it. So, for example, you said um, the, I can't remember, you said the, the absorption of force and the high-speed ex- eccentrics. Is that what you said? Oh, yeah, like, o- over-speed eccentrics, yep. Yeah. You just kind of threw that out as like, yeah, it does that. But but if we go back and look at, number one, when is most, uh, I, don't, I know for hypertrophy, eccentric is clearly in the research is the, the effective phase of a resistance exercise, right? Like eccentrics are two-thirds of the, yeah, it, I mean, I, hypertrophy re- research honestly uh, makes me nauseous uh, because <laughs> it's uh, right. Um, it, it's my point weird. is, my point is yeah. not for hypertrophy. My point is, yep, in, it's easy to focus on. I guess is in, in research, you yep. know, you look at what can be measured is not always the answer to the question, but we need to measure it because the PhD looking over me is going to be pissed if we don't. Um, uh, anyways, <laughs> my point being that people because there's no other exercise or piece of equipment that really highlights that people don't 
see the incredible value of that in something like, for example, low back rehab. The absorption of force, I think, is what builds resiliency much more than the concentric phase or the production of force, all things being equal. I mean, you can find a situation for either one, but I, I would say that, and when you talk to people in the clinic, like, how did you injure yourself? It's typically an absorption issue. I was helping my friend move and I stepped down or, you know, I was picking up my kids and I bent down. Those are not concentric phases, you know? Yep. And I don't want to make this too nerdy, like as if human movement is concentric or eccentric, like a light switch. It's way more complicated than that, as you know. But, but I think like that idea of the rapid absorption of force builds a level of resiliency you just can't do doing uh, deadlifts and, you know, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think glue bridges in a, in a clinic, you know, it's just not the same. Without um, a doubt. And I've been on a force plate. And uh, mm -hmm. just swinging a two-handed two swing with a 24-kilo bell, uh, which is not a heavy, it's about, a, at the time, it was circa 30% body weight uh, yeah. swing. I was producing three to three and a half times my body weight eccentric load at the bottom of that swing. So that, okay. the amount of force that I was yeah. having to catch and then redirect into another swing. Right. That's a really nice return on investment for a 53-pound weight to give me three and a half yeah. times my body weight eccentric load. Um, yeah. So, to, and to your point, and if you talk to somebody like Antonio Squilante and some of the some of the current researchers, there's a lot of focus on the eccentrics uh, from a our performance and safety standpoint for everybody and athletes. So, that's yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and you look at something like a deadlift. If we use that as a, a synonym for the movement, it's like in both that and a kettlebell swing. Are you extending your hips? Absolutely. Can you load the hell out of it? Absolutely. Now let's talk about, you know, a, a deadlift may be one of the best, almost pure, you can make it purely concentric, right? You can just mm -hmm. drop it at the top and we don't have a reloading. Um, and you can load it, but even from the clinic aspect, you know, there's all these things that I love the kettlebell for, one of which is space ain't free, you know, and, and, as you, uh, you know, oftentimes when you're transitioning from clinic to gym, you have very inexperienced lifters and they're letting barbells roll around or barbells are being dropped and then bouncing, you know, four or two feet to the right. And I don't, I'm sure you've had this punch a hole in the wall, like a 200 pound barbell <laughs> on its end will do a lot of damage or it hits a person or it gets in the way. And so if we go like to get to that three times uh, body weight or 3.5 times body weight, Force production, one device fits between my legs and can easily be racked along with 20 of its like. And the other one, I need, you know, the bar six feet long, then I need another foot on either side to load it. So we're at eight feet. And then it's like so variable in, in weight between me and, you know, Susie Johnson, who came in that I need a plate tree that has all sorts of different weights there. And then when we get to the point where we have somebody very experienced like yourself, Brett, I need to have so many plates that the bar starts bending, you know, to get to a point where I'm creating a huge stimuli, all to chase this idea of, hey, can I build resiliency and promote your ability to create forceful hip extension, right? And yep. if you look back, you're like, oh, the kettlebell solved that. You can keep that 24 kilo bell and give it to, you know, give it to anybody, give it to your, your track athlete and your NFL player and, you know, anybody and it still 
can be a smoke show if needed, you know? hundred percent. I, I think that, uh, the, in fact, I was, uh, looking over here, my, uh, 20, uh, four, 20, uh, what, three, 24 year old kettlebell is, uh, sitting over here to my, to my left. Um, not only do they last forever, uh, unless you're doing just very stupid things with them. Um, they are a tool that delivers, um, it, we want, we want to do some energy system work. We, we can go in that direction. Want to build some strength, go in that direction. Um, mm -hmm. do we want to, do we want to do some, um, shore up somebody's stability, motor control, movement, like tell, tell me what direction you want to go. I can, I can, I can go that direction. Um, so right. it, it's a, it's a multi-purpose tool, not just a, but the, the design, I mean, can't evolve the handle on it. Like how useful could that be? Uh, but it's actually, um, uh, you can make it work in a lot of, a lot of areas. Absolutely. You know, I always jokingly say with, well, you know, I've dropped dumbbells and had the ends explode off of them. Metal, you know, metal, uh, dumbbells, the rubber hexagon, I've had an end coming off of that and you end up with something that looks like Thor's hammer. And it's a really good, uh, doorstop with a kettlebell, you know, I've kicked them. Uh, nothing happens. I've dropped them. Nothing happens. I mean, I kicked them and, and nothing happened to the kettlebell, but it did produce, I cussed at them. They don't seem to change. I've, uh, knocked them together. I've run them over, dropped them out of the back of a truck damn near set it on fire, sprayed it with water. And, you know, it's back the next day to keep working in it. Uh, so I would say anybody thinking of buying one, buy a high quality one, you know, buy one from uh, any of them, like our friends that perform better or uh, companies like Rogue or do you any places you have a recommendation for suppliers, because this is a tool that you literally could hand it down to your grandkids. Absolutely. Strong First has a line of kettlebells. Uh, we we do a really nice e-coat and uh, and quality control on them, so they're they're a really nice uh, really nice kettlebell. Yeah. That um, e-coat sounds like a, a nerdy thing, but for those listening, when you bang two pieces of metal together, <clears throat> if you think about a car accident, you bang metal together, um, the metal deforms and the paint usually pops off. So because kettlebells are stored next to each other, or you're using two at a time, paint is a really bad choice of covering because it'll chip off. So then people went to something called powder coating, which is better, still not the greatest. And E-Coat, I believe it gets its name, you electronically or electrically charge the piece of metal and it attracts the, the um, it works like dog hair and buttered toast, you know, where it just finds the nooks and crannies and somehow gets in there. Uh, yeah. Agreed. But yeah, it, it finds the nooks and crannies and holds up better than anything else. They're still going to show some wear and tear, but look, it's, I think uh, the hippies call it patina and you can charge extra for that, you know? Anyways, Brett, what I really want to talk about, um, and by the way, before we go any further, Brett is the director of education for Strong First. If you are somebody that's like, hey, I've messed with kettlebells, I've swung some, I use them at the gym, but I really want to get good with one. Like I want to refine my technique. I want to focus on this. I would say you might've played some golf with your buddies and mess around, but you want to get good at golf, find an instructor. If you're doing that in the world of kettlebells, Strong First is the organization you, you should pursue. Can you real quick tell people where to get that information, kind of the two levels of education you offer between workshops and certs? 100%. And, and thank you uh, very much. Yeah. Um, at, you know, the, the 20 plus years that I've put in working with Pavel and, and the way that we've tried to build this, um, you know, it, it's, been, it's been quite a journey. And uh, so strongfirst.com. Uh, mm -hmm. Go there, 
Uh, you'll see a hamburger menu. You can find out all about our workshops, how to become an instructor, different things like that. So for people that just want to have that experience, learn the technique, uh, we have our general workshops. Um, we strong first, the school of strength. So we follow the scholastic kind of model. So we have kettlebell 101, 201, 301. We have the same level workshops for body weight and barbell have a foundations workshop. So we have many options for people to come in. Uh, these are typically four, four and a half hour workshops that allow people to get their technique looked at and get some programming and, and things of that nature. Then we have certifications in those three modalities, kettlebell, barbell, body weight. And uh, for kettlebell, we have an SFG, uh, Strong First Giria. Giria is the Russian word for kettlebell. Um, level one and level two, we have our SFL and our SFB. So four different certifications. And um, that way we cover the different branches of the School of Strength and um, get people. Um, and the, the coaching certifications are, are dual focused. Uh, we're going to make sure you leave with Strong First Standard Technique and demonstrating form and technique. We're also going to make sure you can coach it. So it is a coach's certification where we are going to make sure that uh, you're learning how to coach, adjust, and and get the individual you're working with to do the technique safely. Yeah, I think I think the two things need to be spoken of there is the standards, I think, are what have made you famous. Um, you know, I think it's really easy to, especially in exercise, it's like, oh, you can take the certification course, but there's no requirement at the end of proving that you know what you're talking about through performance. So I'll go back to golf. You know, if you want to become a certified PJ instructor, they're like, great. You got to play three rounds under, I think it's 80. You got to shoot under 80 for three consecutive rounds. And there's a lot of guys that have done it and been like 78, 77, 82. And they go back and it's 81, you know, 70, like, and it's, it's tough, but what they want to know is I think in golf, it's like, have you been under the gun for a high pressure situation where it would be real easy to lay up and not take a hard shot. But you know what? To win a golf match, you got to take a hard shot periodically, right? Yep. And and that cut line of 80 seems to maintain that pretty well. I mean, that's not going to win you money professionally, but it's, you know, between your friends, it's going to be a pretty decent score. Yep. The the standards in this, the kettlebell certification, the one that I think is is famous in that world is the the snatch test. Right. And can you explain what it is and what the standard is? And let's based on body weight, you would you be using a different uh, kettlebell, but let's go for like a 200 pound male. Just tell us what they would have to do. Well, interestingly, um, for the 200, so at 100 kilos, which is 220, whatever it is, um, you switch over into the 28 kilo bell. But between, I think, 60 right. and, and 100 kilos, it's the 24 kilo bell. So, and, and just for those listeners who maybe, you know, didn't study the metric system as a second language in college, remember, Brett, there are two types of countries on earth, those that use the metric system and those that put a man on the moon. So let's remember <laughs> we're in the, yeah. but in also, if, if somebody weighs 200 pounds, how heavy in pounds would their kettlebell be? 53 pounds. It okay. Is a, and a 24 at, kilo or 53 pound. Bell. Yeah. And at 220 pounds or above, you would jump into a 28 kilo bell, which is a uh, 61, 62 pound. Okay. Bell. All right. So we're talking about 53 or 62 pounds. Let's just say that, but let's stick to the 53. So a hunk of cast iron uh, and you come in and what's the snatch test? Explain what the movement is and explain what the standard is. 
So the snatch is bringing the kettlebell from between the legs to overhead in one uninterrupted motion, then back down and, and performing another rep. With one arm, right? Correct. With okay, one arm. So it's not a, because I know that there is that kettlebell swing that's like overhead with both arms or whatever. We're not talking about that. Yeah, not talking about that. That's It's a single arm snatch. Uh, it's a okay. hundred reps in five minutes. Um, you can set the bell down as often as you want. Um, that doesn't you can yell, you can scream. You can uh, yell, you can scream, you can cry. Uh, yeah. all, all, all three are acceptable. Snot bubbles are okay. Grunting. Uh, I, I don't want to see them. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but you don't uh, really care. What you care about is a hundred clean reps, right? Hundred, hundred reps to the strong first standard within, uh, five minutes. Um, and you can, uh, do that in, you know, te- technique wise, strong first standard technique. Uh, how that happens, a lot of people will do 10 on the right, 10 on the left, set it down, shake it off to the top of the next minute. Do that five times. You got your snatch test. Um, and it's, it's tough. Um, and the reason we have that in place is I know you've spent enough time preparing for this certification so that you have the conditioning and overhead stability and really the dedication to come in because the, the SFG one weekend is not easy. Um, not only will you do, uh, comfortably a thousand plus reps of practicing just the drill skills and techniques, there's six different practice sessions. <clears throat> there's the technique testing, the snatch test, the grad practice. Um, and that's all in three days. Like it's a, it's a big weekend. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of people come through and it's, they, they have a transformative experience by doing that. And I think part of that is in today's society, we have so few rites of passage. Um, not everybody comes through, you know, um, you know, some of my early rites of passage were within wrestling uh, when I was in junior high and, and high school. Um, so, but a lot of people don't have those rites of passage now. And this is a rite of passage that uh, holds people to the standards and techniques and, and make sure that they've prepared adequately to come through this certification. Yeah. So, uh, for those listening, uh, you know, I think we, we in society love seeing people who are held to a high standard, like knowing somebody went through buds at SEAL training, I think is one of those common things for dudes that's like, oh, this dude made it through hell week. Cool. I had it in, in football in high school, two a days for a week. And it's, it's not about Monday. It's about Thursday afternoon's practice. And, and our, you know, my coach said, I want to know that you can run a play when you're tired and you're angry for three days at your, at your teammate. And I want to know, can we still run that play? And to your point, it's like, uh, yeah, it's not, can you do a snatch test when you've had three days of rest in a, in a dark room, uh, with your family at home and no work load for, you know, two weeks. It's at the end of a three day grueling, whatever you want to call that weekend or workshop, and you got to gut it, gut it out and your hands hurt, your shoulders are sore, your back's tight, like you're grumpy, you're, you know, like all those things. Can you still perform a hundred reps to a standard? Yeah. It's a tough thing. So taking that, what is the first time pass rate of that? So, so for everybody understands, first time you get the bell at the end of those three days, knock out a hundred reps, no ifs, ands, or buts. What's the pass rate on that? Well, I'll flip it and tell you that we have about a 30% fail rate. Uh, 30% of the people who take the course do not pass it on their on their first attempt. Um, so um, obviously achievable because we're still getting 70% of the people to pass. 
but we do have about a, a 25 to 30% failure rate. And that's been consistent for years now. All right. So 30% of people don't pass it. Now, yep. it's not just a complete wash. You guys allow them to, to take the test again, right? And whatever. <laughs> so if you fail um, only upwards of um, three of the techniques, and then maybe the snatch test, we allow you to submit via video and complete the uh, certification with your team leader okay. uh, from the event. Um, if you pass, if you don't pass yeah. more than that, or, or you okay. fail more than that, um, then we have you retake. But we let you do that at a, a reduced cost. Okay. Now, I'd love to talk more about the certification and, and the. Tr you said it's a transformative experience. I'd love to hear about some come to Jesus moments you've seen in the eyes of other people. And I'm sure their dead relatives have spoken into their ear at about rep 82. Uh, yes. <laughs> but what I'd love to move on is recently you, you uh, relatively recently put together a project or wrote a book called Iron Cardio. Yes, sir. And I think the snatch test might be the first introduction some people have into that idea of iron cardio or, or the strength-based cardio, which is very almost never addressed in strength and conditioning training. You know, mm -hmm. it's like cardio is either unloaded or, you know, or you do weights that are unlimited rest. But what, what was the goal and kind of what inspired this focus on that? I don't know what you call it. Like the, let's just call it iron cardio. The, the loaded, uh, a loaded environment where your heart rate is, uh, can it's be elevated. seen for externally, you know, it's pumping in your head. <laughs> um, so, um, short story long, um, I, uh, let's see. Um, so in 2014, Pavel and Alexei Sinart published an article called Strength Aerobics, a powerful alternative to hit high intensity interval training. And the concept from that article was you take a bell that you can press 10 times and you clean it, you press it, you squat it, you set it down, shake it off, do it on the other arm, set it down, shake it off, set a timer for 20, 25, 30 minutes, see how many sets you get in uh, during that time frame. You're not supposed to rush. This isn't a puker. This isn't, you know, a gasser. This is just good, consistent work. Uh, and, and in the end, I, it should feel kind of like manual labor. You know, no, nobody that's ever dug a ditch, uh, torn off a roof or, uh, done like good manual labor work is going to sprint through the first 15 minutes of the day. You know, they're going to pace themselves and they're going to, they're going to be able to sustain that eight to 10 hour day. So I started doing some version of this, uh, in my training and because I'm a meathead and well, two things. A, I can't follow a program. Um, I am what I would call an intuitive trainee. To the point that nobody sends me programs to, to, to beta test. I don't get programs from Pavel or Fabio or, or Gray or, you know, anybody because they know I'm not going to follow them. I will take the program. I will do it the way I want to do it. And then I'll tell you what I did with it. Not surprisingly, people it, don't. You're ask like a me. philosopher where the, the student <laughs> asks a question, like, you know, what, what's the best jacket to wear? And you're like, well, let's break down why you even need a jacket and why are you cold? You know, do you feel? And here's my version. Yeah. Um, so in that, um, uh, so that's number one. So when I took it, I went heavier. I wanted a bell that was challenging to press. And so I wanted to build a little more strength within it. Well, fast forward to February 20 of 2020. And I was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, I had, uh, 
primary tonsillar squamous cell carcinoma stage three, uh, P16 positive or HPV based uh, cancer. I went through seven weeks of radiation, five treatments a week and two chemo infusions, lost over 40 pounds over the course of treatment and um, had a had a rough time. Um, so went into treatment. I was heavy. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, like, I want people to understand at this time you are a. If we measured American standards, you're a very fit adult, right? Very fit. Like you've worked out consistently how many times a week with strength and cardio? Like, yeah, three to five times a week. I was training for Sinister, which is the 48 kilo. Uh, that's right. the 100 one arm 10 every 30 seconds for five minutes, yeah. one arm swings. Uh, right. Take a minute rest, do the 10 get ups, one get up. Uh, right. We're not talking about somebody that, that walks three days a week for 45 minutes. Like, right. Yeah. Now, and so, was, go ahead. No, I mean, when you got, when you got down, man, you got, it was noticeable. You got down. Like, it was 40 pounds of, I would say it was 40 pounds of muscle that you lost. Like, well, the, there was some fat there. Um, I, I was, I was weighing about 205. I was heavy. Okay. I was, I was a little thick around the middle. I, I and I yeah. have no problem, uh, saying that, um, yeah. I was heavy. Now, had I not had all of that tissue to sacrifice, uh, I, I barely avoided having a peg tube, which is where they put the feeding tube directly into your stomach and has a bunch of risks with infections. They, they try to avoid it as much as possible. In fact, I went into my last, the last week of treatment that Monday, I go in for my chemo infusion and I'm sitting there waiting for the doc and my doc comes in and she looks at me and she goes, you look really bad. We're not doing this to you today. When your medical oncologist says you look so bad, we're not going to give you chemo today. You look bad. Um, yeah. Because they chemo you unless your blood work says this could potentially cause some really nasty yeah. side effects. This is your guy at the local bar in Pennsylvania who served <laughs> drinks to every drunk, you know, over the last 25 years going, Hey buddy, you need to cut back. It's like, yeah. Jesus, you're done. Yeah. Ooh. Right. So uh, in that uh, journey of making it through cancer treatment and then the, with, with uh, radiation and in particular where I had it in the throat and the neck, um, I couldn't do my PET scans to see if the treatment worked for over three months after the treatment because the radiation stays active in your, in your system. I was actually on fentanyl patches for uh, about six to eight weeks uh, following treatment because of all the pain. Um, there Just was, there was, it was pain in your throat and neck area? Yeah. Yeah, okay. it was pain from the radiation treatment. Uh, to, to the point that uh, a year later when I'm, I'm at, at my doc's office and I think I'm being smart, I'm like, hey, I had tonsillar uh, cancer. Should we remove those? And he kind of looks at me funny for a second and he goes, yeah, you don't have those anymore. The radiation took care of that. Like we actually burned organs out of your body uh, with the radiation. I'm like, oh, thanks, doc. Um, That's awesome. So got that going for me. Um so it was it was a hell of a of an experience and and a, and a um, you know I, I joke now that it's not a joke uh, that the cancer survivor club is the one nobody wants to join, but you yeah. are so happy to be in. Um, yeah. And so fast forward a few weeks after treatment, when I start feeling well enough to start getting moving and doing some training again, and of course I thought well, we're going to go body weight. Cause that's how you start back. I'm, I'm down to 164 body weight training is going to feel great. I'm going to be so strong at this. this I would have hopped on the pull-up bar myself and be like, how many can I rep out here? Like, 
I did. And uh, after two or three, I was like, oh my God, like that, those were the hardest two or three pull-ups I've ever done in my life. And and yeah, I, I was always good at pull-ups as a, as a kid. So I realized I needed, I, yeah, body weight wasn't really where I needed to start. So swings and get-ups, let's go with simple and sinister. Let's start my swings and get-ups. Well, I wasn't strong enough to be powerful. And so I ended up coming back to this strength aerobics idea and then creating all of these different variations and permutations of it, which I started to call iron cardio. And uh, we can get into all of the issues with, uh, and there's an exercise physiologist somewhere listening to this podcast whose head is about to explode as, the, as they're screaming at the uh, uh, device that they're listening to this through. Um, and we'll talk about some of the challenges and, and why, you know, there's why we, the, the, the title iron cardio is almost like clickbaity. Right. It, it's almost a way to get people interested and, and maybe have a little bit of a clickbaity uh, title. Um, but yeah, that's where it came from was uh, me coming back from cancer treatment and uh, successfully uh, regaining. I started with a 24 kilo bell, um, you know, making it through 20 sets um, and and to the point now where I can do. Uh, 40 to 60 sets with a 36 kilo bell. I, I do the 40 kilo bell, double 36, double 32. So I've rebuilt my strength uh, and and my conditioning uh, with with this strategy. And um, and and there, there's a freedom to it because of the intuitive uh, nature of it. Yeah. So the uh, as it as it progressed out. Um, and all of these different variations uh, came about. Um, I, and I did start to look into a little bit more because one of the things that was happening in the background of this was Pavel had produced his uh, strong endurance workshop. Um, Quick and the Dead had come out and now Kettlebell Axe and uh, it's kind of this refinement of this strong, strong endurance sort of universe of the way we look at energy system development and conditioning in Strong First. And, it, and it's really cutting edge. It's it's anti high intensity training. It's it's what the Russians have called for a long time, anti glycolytic training. And uh, training, <clears throat> training in general has taken one of two paths. Uh, there's the path of uh, tolerance. Can you handle the burn? Can you sustain the activity in the presence of this uh, of this burn? And 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 spoiler alert. Uh, you can't. Power goes down, and and it's not the best. It's not the best way to to address it. It also produces a ton of waste products that's hard to clear and and has uh, some after effects. Or you can build your capacity, your ability to clear waste products. Because when we look at energy systems and we and we talk uh, the CP and A lactic systems, what we're going to have is uh, really quick energy production. It's there, it's available, it kicks in within about a half a second or so, it'll sustain you for a few seconds. Then what starts creeping up is glycolysis. Uh, and glycolysis is just not an efficient energy system. It produces a lot of waste product, it doesn't produce that much ATP, and then hopefully your aer aerobic uh, mechanisms are deploying and then they take over and then you're producing energy with oxygen in a pretty efficient manner manner and you know you know it's interesting we started earlier talking about like how effective the overspeed eccentrics were for a strength issue or resiliency mm -hmm. and i feel like what you're describing now is essentially the eccentric side of the cardio equation right the clearing of things is mm -hmm. what is lot not focused on 
right? It's always focused on like, how much can you, how much um, fuel can you basically produce and burn? And it's like, yeah, that's great. Except it's like, you ever see those videos of guys doing their first startup of their new hot rod in the garage and quickly it fills with smoke, right? Yeah. And it's like, all right, well, both the mechanic and the car are going to start running pretty rough here if we don't clear that out. So yeah, Brett, I think we need to, we need to Joe Rogan this thing. Okay. (laughs) I I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of an amazing conversation. And I would like to do a part two with you where we can really expand into this and maybe give some people some tips about how to, how to do the iron cardio from both a, so we're clinicians, right? So there's always the diagnosis and testing kind of baseline. Mm -hmm. How do you measure improvement? Because it's, since it is a novel concept, I think a lot of people are going to be like, I don't even know how to measure that type of cardio, right? It's not like have them run a mile and is the time is under seven minutes. Great. If over seven minutes, we got work to do. So I'd love to expand into that. Can we do a part two in the future? hundred percent. Absolutely. I'd love to. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, that's the promise to the listeners. I will set it up with Brett. Uh, so I'm going to end it here and then we're going to jump back in at this point. So as I say, uh, for Brett Jones, this is Dr. Josh Satterley saying, go out there, maximize your license and live the life you dream of. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, sir. Look forward to our next call. Thanks a lot for listening to Clinic Gym Radio. If you're looking for more information about me, about us, about our programs, then just head to clinicgymhybrid.com. Again, that's clinicgymhybrid.com. You can check us out there. We've got our accelerator program and a few other programs that will help you get up and running as quickly as possible and making more money while providing excellent active therapy to your patients.